So if we're looking at something that comes from a different time and or place, there are aspects of our through our humanity that we can, even at that base level, that we can approach it through that aperture. But without the aperture of language, then you're just you're staring at something that's completely unrecognizable, and that's the issue we find. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. When I was a kid, I believed in magic. And as a teenager and a college student, I still believed in it, except I didn't think that supernatural things outside the constraints of this world were possible. And it did seem that if you really could understand the nature of reality, then you'd be able to see things and do things that to a more casual observer, it seemed like magic. I was fascinated with shamans and unconventional healers until I realized the troubles and transformations that go with that path. I wanted a glimpse of the underlying structure of reality, but not enough for that sort of reality-shredding hero's journey. And when I started to bump into Chinese medicine, I thought, hey, maybe this is a way to get a glimpse into the nature of how things work and to forgo that utter destruction of the ego that those hero shaman figures of my youth had to endure. Isaac Asimov, the prolific and famous science fiction writer, said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's true. If you know how to look below the surface of things, you'll be able to tinker in unseen realms, and the results on the surface, they'll be unexplainable. This is partly why acupuncture can seem like magic, and this is why a well-placed needle can catalyze profound change. We're biased in our world toward knowing. We favor the known over the unknown. It's certainly more comfortable that way, and it gives us a feeling of confidence and control, which has its place, but it does keep us more on the surface of our world. It doesn't so easily allow us into the experiences that have no names attached to them. The principles of Chinese medicine really don't tell us what to do, but they do help us to better understand and sense how nature works. And having a glimpse into how things work, that allows us to craft an intervention that just might be helpful to our patients. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. 
and tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Josh Painter, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you. I understand you were recently in China. I was. I just got back one week ago today. Mm-hmm. Over the jet lag yet? Just last night was my first full night's sleep. Okay, so Dallas actually do get jet lag. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you in China? What were you doing? I was visiting um, with my Taoist brothers, my partner Jack Schaefer and I, and uh, and some of our good friends Ross Rosen and Sandino Grillon and uh, Jeff Sherman. The five of us were going to look at a new, a few new choices for our Parting Clouds educational program. Sometimes we need to go and meet teachers and see if it's a place that we can take twenty people, both in terms of accommodation and in terms of the teaching style. And we also went to visit old teachers and have some other exciting meetings in Beijing. So it was a great trip. We were in Zhejiang. And oh man, Zhejiang's a great place. It really is. And the, yeah. and the, the little town that we go to, Jinxiang, which is near Tsangnan, is such a beautiful little mountain town. It's just a great place to be. And then we went to Hubei. We were in Wuhan, uh, where we 
visited a temple there, a new temple to us. And Jack and I were both ordained into a lineage there. That was a great experience. That Taoist family in that monastery was really impressive, and we were really happy to meet them and make these connections. And then we went to Beijing, where we had a meeting with the Chinese Taoist Association at their headquarters at Baiyunguan to discuss the relationship of parting clouds and the Chinese Taoist Association. And we were able to make an official relationship this this last visit and now we are like a recognized Taoist entity by the cda which is really exciting for us because we get full support from them we have access to the Taoist college and its library and all of that stuff so it's been a, it was a great trip in all of those ways wow so you've connected with new resources mm-hmm. i've been to that that white cloud temple in beijing when i lived there yeah i didn't understand anything that was going on there Yeah, you know, Taoism, unfortunately, is still pretty opaque to the general public here in the West. And uh, not only. I think it's somewhat opaque to the Chinese as well, isn't it? Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. Not only is it opaque here in the West, but there's also the other issue of the effects of both Victorianism and the 60s New Ageism on Taoism. So we also suffer from not just the lack of understanding of it in direct experience, but also the uh, preponderance of, of craziness, literally, in terms of how the West has built up its own version of Taoism. I have wondered about this. I really have. And, and I'm so glad to have you here for this conversation today, because so often, and this is just me, often I'll hear about something like, oh, this Taoist blah, blah, blah. And, and because the word Dallas is in there, I'm supposed to be like, oh, yeah, this is this is important and I should listen. And at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so here is one aspect of traditional Chinese culture that goes way, way back. I mean, my understanding, at least the, the short time that I spent in China, is, is even the Chinese don't have the greatest understanding of what it's about. I mean, I call this the Chaucer problem. You and I speak English. We're native English speakers. Chaucer was around, what, four or 500 years ago? I don't know the exact dates on that. For us to go and read Chaucer is almost impenetrable. How are we, as Westerners, supposed to really understand anything about Dallas? And that comes not just across language, but across culture and time. So I'd, I'd love to hear you speak to some of that. Those are the hurdles. I mean, you've, you've laid them out. Uh, that is what we struggle with or against. And that is what we are trying to overcome in whatever way possible. The main impediment that we've noticed in terms of our program and the, and the ability of our students to grasp concepts and also to work with the development of their understandings is that the, the main hurdle is linguistic. Any text that is not from our own time we all suffer from the, the issue of anachronism, for sure. But I think that that can be overcome in, in terms of scripture, because scripture has a timeless quality to it. Because the core concepts are something that really do defy any particular cultural or, or temporal milieu. However, the language, though, is the thing that if you don't have that, then you, you really are stuck. Because you can't creatively or intellectually create something from that if it's completely impenetrable to you. So if we're looking at something that comes from a different time and or place, there are aspects of our through our humanity that we can 
even at that base level that we can approach it through that aperture. But without the aperture of language, then you're just you're staring at something that's completely unrecognizable. And that's the issue we find that the first gate that people have to go through to a better understanding of Taoist practice and and also the variety of other issues, text and culture, is that they should learn <laughs> they should learn or at least attempt some language. And I feel the same way about Chinese medicine too. It is useful. It does open up a gateway, like you say. Yeah. To, to be able to do that. I mean, sometimes there are things they get translated, and in English, it's kind of interesting or quaint or even poetic, but within the language itself, it just suddenly makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, something very simple, super mundane here, the names of herbal formulas. Yeah, right. Right. For instance. For instance, right, you learn an herbal formula in pinyin, and you kind of memorize it because you do that. But if you know the Chinese, you don't have to memorize it because it just makes sense. It tells you what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because the average acupuncture student spends their first year or two memorizing a litany of sounds. And those sounds have no attached meaning. And so they have to then manufacture the collaboration between the concept that they're learning and the sounds that they're they're memorizing and so they have an extra step and that unfortunately because they're using some sort of creative process and and mnemonics that they're developing on the fly the system can break down pretty easily and i think that's where a lot of the struggle is with the uh, acupuncture student when they're especially in their herbal studies this is really interesting as as you say this in realizing all that sort of background heavy lifting we're doing in the beginning to, to try to create some mental structures and models to put these sounds against so that they can represent the experience we're having and understanding these things that we're learning, it might actually be easier if you just went and learned a little basic Chinese. Yeah. And, and then later, you don't have to do that heavy lifting. And in fact, you've actually got a, a foundation that would support it. Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. And not only that, but the a basic understanding, if not a, a memorization of the necessary characters, but a basic understanding of the operations of the Chinese language is really helpful. So w- when I taught at Turo College, um, when we developed the program, Kevin Ergel and Marnie Ergel and Kathy Taramina and Craig Mitchell, we had a mandatory Chinese class in there. That was the first semester. So what we did is we worked that class in parallel with their introduction to Chinese medical theory. Simultaneous to their introduction of the concepts in the one class, it was being supported in the language class. And we were working with the etymology of the characters and um, pronunciation. We, worked, we got them comfortable with pinyin. Even that alone is very helpful because if you're at home studying with certain sounds and the teacher is producing others, there's still a lag, a gap, or a stumbling point between your understanding and the teacher's talking. And so even something as remotely likely being helpful as even understanding the pronunciation of pinyin, that actually turns out to be quite helpful. Because you can understand what your teachers are saying. Yeah, in real time. So you're not, you're not, you're not comparing it to, well, I say P-Lan and they say Pay-Lan, so now I have to make this connection between these two pronunciations and figure out where I'm at. By the time you do that, they're already still talking. So you're, you're coming in and out of the conversation and the fluidity of the edu- of the pedagogy is lost on the student when they're doing that navigation. Yeah. So back to this language and culture piece, 
I want to circle back to it. What I'm curious about right now is what got you started on this path? Did you start with medicine? Did you start with Taoism? What, what was your entree into all of this? Yeah. So my grandmother was a student of Chinese painting. Her best friend and her, essentially her sister was Alison Stilwell Cameron, who was the daughter of General Stilwell, Vinegar Joe, who wrote The American Experience in China. Vinegar Joe is a really interesting character in World War yeah. II. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so Allison was actually born and lived in the compound with the deposed Qing emperor's family. So she grew up speaking the imperial Chinese, all of the mannerisms, and she studied painting with Puru. And that's who my grandmother's grandmaster was. So this is the lineage of her painting. So when I was little, my grandmother was both a, an avid artist in the tradition of Chinese painting, but also a, a, a Sinophile. I was steeped in that. And when I was in high school, she sent me to, to China in 1990. We, I was supposed to go in 89, but of course the summer of 89 was uh, not a good summer to go to China. Not even possible. So I went in 90, and then that trip sort of sealed the deal for me. And I, that was right before I left for college. And when I went to college, that became my only desire was to A, learn Chinese, and B, to learn about Taoism. Because in my house, I was raised by really hippie parents, and the Jia Fu Feng, Jane English, Dao De Jing, and Zhuangzi were both on the shelf in front of where I played as a child. Then I can see the spine of that book. It's indelible in my memory. And when I came of a certain age, I would pull it down and look at it, Simultaneously, I was watching ridiculous 1970s kung fu movies on New York City television. We had like a, I think it was called Drive-In Theater. And so every Sunday, it was kung fu movies and all of that. And of course, like a lot of young men, that was really my entree to, to Chinese culture was through that. Sure, that stuff was super cool, man. Yeah. Superpowers in human beings. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted that. I went to college and I started with Chinese art history. And I realized I couldn't do that successfully without some Chinese history. And I realized that a lot of Chinese history involved religion, and I couldn't study that without there were the linguistic issues became really pertinent. So then I started studying the language, and I couldn't do that well without enrolling in college in China. So that's how I found myself at Yunnan University in Kunming in, in 94. In Kunming, at that time, I wanted to go and visit Taoist temples. I did visit many. Some were in ruins. Some were basically reenactment theater. And any Taoist that I talked to was really sort of like circumspect, quiet, nervous, and not really willing to talk too much. Well, for good reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 94 was, uh, Wudong had just been reestablished in the early 90s. And there was some sort of resurgence. There was some sort of safety in coming back to the temples. Um, and I know that there are lots of people, um, some of our scholars who were there way before that and were talking to Taoist teachers at temples and all. Just so happened that in my experience, I didn't have that, not in the locale, or not in my vicinity, or not in my experience. So, I'm, which is not to say that in 1994 there was no Taoism. There's a lot of people would like to say things like that. I just wasn't savvy enough to find it. It's my fault. Well, there there is that savvy piece about learning to navigate in the Middle Kingdom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and there's also the piece that so often the stuff that is on display is not actually the stuff. Yes. 
So how did you find your way to the stuff that wasn't on display? Well, that it was through the Taoist community, the international Taoist community, which is upon which I had to rely because I did try to rely on academia. And that proved to be, in a lot of ways, a dead end in some ways. And in other ways, it was a good, it was a good foundational structure for what, what would become later my, my practice and orientation in Taoism. But I have worked my way through a lot of relationships, made a lot of friendships. That's how it has all come to fruition is by various partnerships. And I really do believe that to study Taoism in the West cannot be done alone. My friend Jack Schaefer and I, I really do think that without him, we couldn't have done any of the things that we have done together if we were doing try, attempting them independently. I like to tell people that uh, don't try to do it alone. Just find someone who you think knows what they're doing and talk to them and talk to everyone and see if you can construct a meaningful relationship to the Taoist community. Because the Taoist community is a living community. And uh, it has not been extinguished, not by the Cultural Revolution or anything else for that matter. The continuation all the way back is still there through the lineages. And so to find out about that and to learn about that really requires that you talk to people, human beings. Theory and all of those, the important features of doctrine are, are textual, but generally speaking, that's not enough in my experience. You know, you talked earlier, and this really rang a bell for me, because it, it just seems true, that when reading Scripture, Scripture is unique in a way, because while it's words and it may come from a different time, and, a, and the language may be different to some degree, there's something about Scripture that goes through time. While it, you might have to work at it, there's, there's an essence of something in it. It goes through time. It's like a jing, right? Like the Dao De Jing, the jing. Right? It's this thread that actually goes through time. So we've got that piece of it, and that can be helpful. But what I'm also hearing from you is the other piece that really brings it to life is the community as it is today and as it is unfolding and as people connect and practice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, we have the three treasures of the, of the Tao, the scriptures, and the teachers. The teachers can also be read at large as um, the community itself. And so so the three treasures of Tao are what? We have three treasures all, all over the place, right? Yeah, Tao scriptures, <laughs> teachers. Tao scriptures, teachers. Okay. Or Tao scriptures, masters, depending on how you read that character. What's the character? Sure, like um, Sherfu. Sherfu to Sher. Yeah. Lao Sher to Sher. Yeah. Yeah, okay. There is a parental quality to that character um, or a master-disciple quality to that character. But in a living tradition... Just as in a genealogy, the space that we occupy in our generation is not fixed because we will then occupy the space of being a parent eventually and then a grandparent. When it says teachers or masters, the, the, the implication is that you yourself will also be one of those to the next generation of practitioners. And so it does really suggest community at large rather than just, um, yeah. You know, I think we see this in our Chinese medicine community, right? We start off as students, we uh, enter in as journeymen and women, right? Trying to do the work. And then eventually we're probably helping other people to learn it as we go on and they're coming up. Right. Right. That's in my experience how it's gone. I mean, that's a living tradition. 
And luckily, that's how it is, so that it's not so um, monolithic that we, that we maintain the teachers until uh, they're useless. You know, we let it breathe and move that, you know, new generations are bringing new things. And I think, interestingly, that if we look at the recent history of Chinese medicine, we can see the value of allowing the next generation to have their input, which is to say that, you know, in the 80s, we were lucky to have any text. In the 90s, we had translations of classics showing up. And now we have people, because of, they, because of their education, uh, and because their education has contained a good amount of um, classical access to the classics, they're, built, they're now able to analyze and come up with new innovative ideas. If we were working strictly from the available texts from the 80s, innovation would have been a strange thing because they're innovating on very unstable ground. But I think the innovations that are coming out of this, the younger generation now are pretty amazing because they're so well-founded in an understanding of the classics. Some, there are some really good access to classic approaches and literature at this point, which wasn't really the case um, in the 90s even. Unless you spoke and read Chinese. I mean, then you had access to whatever you wanted. But now, even in translation, there's that access. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. I want to circle back to that in a moment, the, the access to these things. But, but I first want to ask you about this dynamic, because I think it's so true that we take from the past whether it's teachers, texts, you know, what's ever come down to us, learn it as best we can. We get to put our spin on it, our innovation, if you will. The thing I'm curious about is what if what you've had access to is that crazy 60s stuff, and now you're innovating off of things that maybe aren't that well-grounded. How to make sure that the influences that we're putting in are stable and I don't know if pure is the right word, but that there's there's an essence to it that allows us to understand so that we're innovating and we are adding to it in a way that that actually adds to the tradition and not kind of go off in some delusional crazy side trip. I mean, I'm sure stuff like that happens all the time anyway. Well, you know, it, your point is really well made, and, I, and it's something that I, is of central importance to me. If we study a tradition and we don't study it honestly, authentically, and fully, and then we improvise, 
then we diminish the tradition because our improvisations are then taken as part of the canon potentially. And if we do that and we're half cocked, then the, the tradition is then it's tilted sideways. Exactly. I mean, I, I see things all the time where someone grabs a line out of the Tao Te Ching. Yeah. <laughs> and then they spin it into, and this is why I can do blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, that's an issue of hermeneutics, you know, and that's what we struggle with. You know, when someone reads, a, like you were talking about, scripture is a, is a particular issue. Reading scripture, we don't analyze scripture. You can if you're a historian or an anthropologist or whatever, but if you are a, if your aspiration is to be a practicing member of a lineage or whatever, then the way that you read the text, the hermeneutic through which you approach the text should be, a, if you're reading a Taoist text, you want to approach it through a Taoist hermeneutic. If you're reading it as a converted Christian, you're going to keep on trying to support your own personal view. And so what you're doing there is you're a tourist and you're cherry picking. And you're not looking at the actual topography in its own essence. And, and I think that that can be extended, although we don't read Chinese class, medical classics at, through a hermeneutic, we do read them through analysis. But I do think that the ability to read Chinese medical text, it should be such that the reader already knows and is prepared to read what they're setting forth to read, which is to say, to, to read and try to analyze the Shang Han Lun when you have no real deep understanding of even general herbal practice is probably not going to bear the best fruit. Or if you don't have general understandings of um, fundamental or foundational operations of Chinese medical dynamics, you know, then you, you're, you're sort of overstepping your ability. And some people do that in ways, and then they write it down, and it ends up in a book, and then the, the future people who are reading this cannot cross-reference. And that's a significant issue. That happens in Chinese medicine in a few places. One is in this way, where there's a conceptual issue that's not really part of the tradition. It might be a great idea, but you can't find how that idea actually syncs up with the classic corpus. The other way in which that happens is when we have the the crazy tower of Babel of translated terms. And so we have the, all of these English terms. The writers may or may not notify us, which is the original term, and then we have no access. We can't move that understanding of that text into the tradition at large. And so it's kind of disembodied because we can't integrate it with the whole because linguistically we don't know what is what. This is where some scholarship is really helpful. Yeah, and this is part of the great value of texts written by either Weissman or Bensky, whoever, anyone who's developed a glossary and they, and, and within that glossary, they have been um, rigorous. Um, as long as it doesn't matter if we have a few glossaries, as long as each one is rigorous in its own sphere and we can cross reference the terms from Weissman to Bensky and then back into the classics, then those texts become very valuable to us. If it's not done like that, then they're almost useless eventually. There are people who have tried to tackle this within the sphere of their own writings, which is to create a glossary of translation, translated terms. I mean, this has been going on for decades. It's still, when you talk to Chinese medicine practitioners, one of the problems that I encounter is depending on the school that they've gone to, 
they may use a different vernacular, and our conversations are really difficult to have. Well, they're not only difficult to have, but then we start arguing with about, is your vernacular better than my vernacular? Do these guys make sense? And and instead of looking at the value that each vernacular may actually point towards, right? The common things that it points towards, we start arguing over, well, who's right, who's wrong, who's best, who's not so good. Yeah. Yeah. The underlying concepts may actually be something that we're discussing, but if we're going to only engage the husk, which is the transitive mm. term, then, um, then it's definitely bound for uh, disappointing ends. Yeah. I want to come back here to hermeneutics because this is a word that I have no idea what it means. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a complicated field and, and term, but it, it generally refers specifically to scripture and how one approaches scripture and finds meaning within that scripture. Because scripture, unlike certain technical texts, deserves analysis, but it can't be analyzed in the same way. And also there's the issue of the identity of the reader themselves, which is to say, if you read Taoist text from a deep-seated perspective of and from another religion, then you will find within that Taoist text meaning that reinforces your religion or stands at odds with it, but you're still reading it through the lens of your, your own particular faith. And so if, if you read a Taoist text as a Taoist or you read it through a Taoist hermeneutic, once you can develop that view, the texts all start to have a very fascinating, the complexity of the texts really becomes, it's still complex, but the texts start to be very mutually informative because you can see the patterns within them through coming at them through an understanding of the basic doctrinal tenets and stuff like that. Reading as a Taoist begets understanding as a Taoist. So to do this, it sounds like you're asking us to give up something that is super fundamental to human beings, which is that we have these mental models. We have this idea of how the world is mapped out. And it's hard to see the world through the lenses, knowing that we're wearing particular lenses. It sounds like in, in reading Dallas texts and, and being able to recognize I'm reading this Dallas text as a Westerner, maybe with a, you know, judo Christian background to know that you've got your filters and to be able to like set those filters aside. How do we set those filters aside? That, I mean, this seems like a real practice that would be helpful in lots of places, not just reading uh, Dallas texts. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. You know, in general, the practice of trying to approach things for what they are versus projecting onto them what we want them to be, I think that's generally a good practice. This reading text is that issue sort of writ large. If we look at a word and the word has its inherent meaning, and we decide that it means something else because we want it to, that's really just that example. It shows how if we do that with every word and with an entire text, then there's, there's a strange situation going on there. 
There um, is, but doesn't the human mind naturally gravitate toward this? I think the human mind gravitates toward understanding, and we will try to understand something on each go as best we can through whatever apparatus we have to do so. And I think that that's the importance of continual and um, repeated study and honest analysis, because we can develop an ability for the to, instead of trying to change the text, we allow the text to change us. And, and that, I think, is the true value. And so don't forget, also, what we have to remember about any given text is that the text itself is an extra corporealization of someone else's mind. And so if we are reading that text, we are reading the mind of the person who wrote that text, which is to say, that is not our mind, that's their mind. And just like any conversation between two people, a better conversationalist is going to listen to what the person's saying. Of course, it'll be shaded by our interpretations, but you don't want to put words in someone else's mouth, and you don't want to put concept into a text. And the more you expose yourself to a text or a family of texts, I think the more fluent you get at being able to perceive the import or the, the whatever the text is insisting upon. Just like talking to people, the more you talk to them, the better listener you become. That's where the repeated exposure to new ideas really comes in handy because you're developing an ability to do that in the first place. If you read a text once and decide that's what it means and you walk away from it, there's not much value in that because you only gave it one shot. And generally, if you give something one shot, you're, you're, it's more of a projection than an understanding. Sure. Well, and especially if you walk away, unfortunately, thinking you understand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because then you don't come back and revisit it. Right. We comfort ourselves by saying, well, I get it. Or even worse, getting halfway through and deciding, ah, I understand this. I don't need to do the rest. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, I, I have plenty of experience doing that myself, only to find somewhere down the road, not right. I was wrong about that. Wrong again. Yeah, we all do that for sure. And we all do that in, in the micro when we're dealing with a conversation with another person we can make up our minds about them before they even start talking and the rest of the conversation is just in support of our imaginary assumptions sure i mean i think this happens all the time you walk into a room of people that you don't know there will be a few usually that you feel somewhat attracted to for a reason you have no idea of there will be some you actually don't want to talk to them you don't know why and there's others you don't even see them you're so yeah. indifferent yeah and, and all this stuff happens completely below the level of language. Yeah. And I think the same thing goes with text. That's why you, if you read something a few times, every time you read it, you will see some gem within a line that you completely didn't, that you missed the first time through or whatever. And that's what makes for really phenomenal books, right? You can read it at one stage. You come back later. It's a different book. Yeah. It's interesting too, because in you know, just in terms of this conversation, when we're referring to Chinese text, there's another added layer to all of that too. You know, like for instance, if we take poetry, like a a, a poem by Li Bai, you know, the Chuangqian Mingyue Guang, the light is shining in front of my bed. At first glance, I, it looks like frost. So you look at that poem, you read it. It's beautiful. The imagery is incredible. It's you know, it's fantastic. 
But then we remember that it's written in pictures. The Chinese language is these little pictures. Then you start looking at the little pictures and you can see that Levi, most likely, I like to assume, made a decision to put characters, as many characters with the moon radical in that poem as he could. So the moon is literally shining through the page itself, not just through the words, you know. And so the Chinese language has this other weird added dimension that you have to read it at so many levels. And I think that that's part of the real beauty is that it requires of us that we pay attention and that we don't make these kinds of assumptions. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very playful language I found in my limited study of it. I find it very playful. Yeah. In that way. Yeah, there's a lot of possibility in expression, both in expression and also interpretation. You know, there are so many nuanced ways to, um, for, the, for these ideas to arrive because it's not just, uh, you know, alphanumeric. Mm-hmm. Well, it's another uh, ticking the checkmark box for uh, go learn some Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to come back to something really simple because, you know, again, when I think of Taoism, I mean, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, right? Watched Kung Fu on TV. And and I, I think somewhere early on, you know, late high school, early college, I had a copy of the I Ching, right? The Baines version, which uh, was completely unpenetrable to me. Every time I'd pick it up and read it, I would not understand it. Every time. Eventually, I gave it away because even though I thought I should keep it because it's like a classic, I could never get it. And, you know, you hear about Taoism and, and, you know, as a Westerner, I mean, I've studied Chinese medicine. I practice it. I've spent a little time in Asia. But when it comes to Taoism, I really have this great big question mark. I don't even know how to begin to think about it. So for people like me, Taoism 101, how would you start to explain it to someone that really doesn't have much of a clue because honestly, I don't have much of a clue, even though I've got copies of the Tao Te Ching around and I, and I find them delicious to read. It's like the more I read, the more I don't understand it really. There is some universality to that, that predicament. And uh, if you were to, for instance, if you were to take the new Testament and derive solely from the text of the new Testament, all of the practice and ritual involved in a Catholic mass, if that were your mission, you would fail. <laughs> and so, <Good> point. <laughs> so we can't, that can't be our mission. We can't approach text assuming that the text will produce for us an, an understanding of the living tradition. The text will support post facto, our understanding of what's happening once we've been exposed to the living tradition, it informs it greatly as a matter of fact. And even something as cryptic as the Tao Te Ching becomes such a mundane and useful text once you are in within the tradition that it takes on... So what I'm saying is that your hermeneutic changes itself. What I say to people is, if you want to understand Taoism... You can read something like the Tao Te Ching or Zhuangzi. Those are fantastic texts, and they do have the beautiful qualities of these core Taoist principles like wu wei and you know emptiness and things like that. 
that's all great. But how that comes to be the tradition is another thing altogether. To understand the activities of any religious community, the easiest way, and it's, I don't know why this is so difficult for people, the easiest way is to find a practitioner within that community and talk to them. Sounds pretty simple. Yeah, it really is. I don't know why, personally, it took me such a long time to recognize that myself. You know, I thought that the solutions to my inquiries were going to be found. I was always one book away from understanding what was going on. One chapter, one page away. That kind of game is a, is a losing game for sure. And as soon as you start to, to have human relationships, because a living tradition requires living people to unwind it for you, to actualize it for you. And once you are within that relationship of self to community, and then once you cross through the door to the community, when there is yourself is limited in that sense, because now you're one of, of this community, you are part and parcel the community itself. That's when these things, all of the mystery about what it is from the outside is just sublimates, you know. Um, watching a, a priest of any religion perform their rituals, uh, it's amazing and all of that. But if you wanted to know what they're doing, all you have to do is walk up after the performance and ask them, what is the symbolism of this or that? And it's going to be easily unwound for you. But if you try to work through it in a vacuum, it's just generally not going to work out. You know? Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective, herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, you know, and I think especially for those of us that do Chinese medicine, we have a deep regard for the classics. We have a deep regard for, for the scholarly pursuits. It's, it's, part of the, uh, it's part of the culture of doing Chinese medicine. We have a reverence for that sort of thing and expect that, that these things are going to reveal something to us. And they can, like you were talking about earlier with the Shanghan Lun, especially if you have some background super helpful. You're just talking about the Tao Te Ching. If you've got some background, it's a, it's a simple operating manual, the idiot's guide to Wu Wei. <laughs> and yet there's this other piece 
that I just heard you talk about, which is being within a living, breathing human community and being in conversation and being in connection and relationship, because that's the living essence of the stuff that's in the books coming through. And then they, then it becomes a mutually informative yes, exactly. relationship. And, and that's the important part to remember is that once you're within a living tradition, you are the blood and chi of that tradition. It can no longer survive without you. It did before, but once you are in, it can no longer. Because you are now part of what will produce its progeny, you know? It's very much in the vein of ancestor worship, where the, the current generation is a fulcrum between the living and the dead, and uh, the past and the future. And so once you're within a community, you now occupy that fulcrum position, and you bear the responsibility of interpretation of the past and the implementation toward the future. And, uh, and that, I think, um, that responsibility brings with it a certain type of awareness and generates a true reliance on others in the tradition. Because you realize, I can't make this stuff up, and I can't teach stuff that I don't know. I need to find someone who does, and I need to pass it on. So the, 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 just the responsibility itself derives an appropriate behavior in terms of the community. Self-regulating in that way. Yeah, it is. Right. Mm -hmm. What about the connection of Taoism to medicine? Uh, I mean, sometimes I will see, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet. If you want to make yourself nuts, just go look on the internet. But I often hear the idea that, oh, Chinese medicine has Taoist roots. I don't even know what to make of that. What are the connections between Taoism and the medicine we practice? If there are connections or are there specific strains or, uh, or currents, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. There are two shores. One is Taoism and one is Chinese medicine. And between them runs the river of Chinese culture. And sometimes there are sandbars from both ends that come to near convergence with each other. But it's but Taoism and Chinese medicine are not the same thing. And that's a that's a really important distinction to understand when you when you come to Taoism as a Chinese medicine practitioner, because it, it is a pitfall for most of us that came that way. I actually came to Chinese medicine through Taoism because I saw that Chinese medicine, at least in that at that time in my life, it was optimistic of me at best. Um, I saw Chinese medicine as a living tradition that offered a, to be a conceptual cousin to what I estimated to be the tenets of Taoism. Um, it didn't prove to be that way, but it at least got me in the door. Um, <laughs> like a magic trick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a back, it was a trap door, some kind of, and and I, in that, the, the availability of that access, definitely it did help to inform certain ways of being that helped me in the path that I've taken in terms of Taoism in particular. But I'll, I'll go back to the question. There are convergences or there are these sort of like plexus moments within Taoism and Chinese medicine where they rely on certain cosmological principles for the most part that are common to each other. And there are places in Taoism where there's terminologies used that are consistent, at least on the surface with Chinese medicine, but just below the surface, there's a complete divergence. 
um, within one great example is something like the the five so-called souls, whatever the Hun Po, Shen, etc. The Chinese medicine understanding of those five spirits is very distinct from the Taoist understanding, and the Taoist understanding of the body and its and its occupation by various spirits has nothing to do with Chinese medicine. There are vast amounts of little spirits that live in the body in various tissues, not just the five main organs. There is some sort of synergy between these two things, but they're not the same thing, at least all the time. So this is where it gets crazy, because sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, I mean, welcome to the world of Chinese medicine right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This is one of the things I think drives people crazy initially, because often the answer is it depends. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, absolutely. There is a thing that we could call Taoist medicine. It's tricky to do that because Taoist medicine does incorporate acupuncture and herbs, but it also, alongside that, would incorporate prayer, talisman, and various religious um, qualities. And so it's like the Taoist borrows Chinese medicine, and Chinese medicine borrows Taoism. And so there's this mutual sharing, but they're not, they're not knitted together necessarily in the way that it's professed in the Chinese medicine community. It's very much, I would say, uh, wishful thinking. And, it, and, and what I think that the, the wishful thinking is rooted in our insistence, which I do see fading, by the way, in the, in the Chinese medicine public, but there used to be an insistence that Chinese medicine was like this quasi-religious, body and mind, spiritual medicine. Now we see the younger acupuncturists latching on to we are a scientific community. It can all be proven, and this is how we want to go from here. Um, and we want to get in paid by insurance. I see that the the issue of the conflation of Taoism and Chinese medicine. I don't see that being a long-standing problem, as I see our field diverging away from these sort of foundations. Of course, there are little pockets and communities who are interested in the classics and the philosophical underpinnings of Chinese medicine. But I think at large, the issue of Taoism and medicine will be left behind soon. It used to be central to, in, in my experience, when I was educated, it was a central sort of like discussion. But um, I don't know, you know. Yeah. What about historically? I mean, I, I get it. Every generation comes in, they go in a certain direction. Another generation comes in, they often define themselves by going in a different direction, right? I mean, that's really common. Are in looking at history, would you say there's times that I'm going to use medicine here in air quotes and Taoism, have they come more together and then in other For generations sure. come back apart and then they come back together? Maybe early on when you and I were first looking at Chinese medicine, they were closer together. And now we're seeing, yes, people are looking to do these integrative clinics, make it scientific. Uh, you know, I, I mean, do some things like we were actually seeing uh, in China in the early part of last century, where they're trying to distance Chinese medicine from uh, the traditional roots and make it more, air quotes again, scientific. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, there, definitely, in, historically, there are, in particular, if not within, if not described by era, it would definitely be described by personage, um, these very um, densely packed uh, moments where Taoism and medicine come together. And that happens within the practice of certain people like like Sun Sun Miao, like Ma, like Ma Danyang, 
and you know other of these famous Taoist physicians and the implications of their Taoism on their writing, Li Shijin, and the practices that they engaged in Taoism affected the the writings that they produced around medicine. So Li Shijin was an internal alchemy practitioner, and that that had effects on his writings on the extraordinary vessels, as we know from Chip Chase's wonderful book. You know, so we can see. This type, these types of things happening throughout history in terms of the people involved and how they personally integrated their experiences. But technically speaking, though, textually and all of that, it's not that common to see. I mean, even in the Neijing, we, we like to assume that, oh, the Neijing, because it talks about yin and yang in five phases, it must be Taoist. But it's not really... Some of the apocryphal chapters, like 72, for instance, are... Um, Taoist in their nature, because that one is actually an invocation of the guardians of the four directions, and uh, it's very that that's a that's a quintessential Taoist practice that we use regularly. Um, but that's an apocryphal chapter; it's not really, and that one is a practical thing too. But uh, other than that, you know, if we look in there, there's cycles of time, and there's all the cosmology. But these are things that are consistent with Huainanza anyway. And the cosmology of the Han Dynasty and, and and around that time. So, is that Taoist or is that just of its time? You know, mm -hmm, what I mean? mm -hmm. that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. These things are interesting, and and there's also in the Neijing, there's so much Confu directly Confucian language that it's hard to it's hard to say that it is one thing or another. But it 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 is syncretic, as most Chinese classics are. They do engage a variety of tributaries um, to to create the, the the river that they become. You know, we can look at the Tao Te Ching's first question and the answer to that first question, and we can see, you know, uh, it's almost a very it's a very Taoist answer. You know, like why do people only live to fifty? They used to live to a hundred. Now they're decrepit at fifty. What's going on? And uh, they don't know the Tao. They don't know Yin Yang, and they can't keep a calendar. So that's pretty much a very that answer is consistent with the way that Taoists approach the nurturing of life, you know. But is that a Taoist answer, or is the Taoist just working from the same playbook? I don't know. I love it that there's not easy answers. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I really do. I, I've always been a little bit suspicious of easy answers. Yeah, so this is that's a that's a thoughtful thing. Thank you. I want to hear a bit about the work that you're doing and you're teaching. We're going to get into that in just a moment. Um, but I want to circle back to something that you mentioned. You said prayer and talisman. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing and teaching. That's one of the things that I'm doing and teaching. Okay, I've got I've got some questions about this. Prayer is one of those words that, and this is just me, Michael Max. You know, in my own crazy life, you know, whenever I hear the word prayer, I go. What the hell are you talking about? It's like everyone's supposed to know what prayer is. I've got really no idea, except it seems to be important. Lots of people do it. They think it's helpful. There's lots of different practices for it. Yeah. What would you say prayer is? So this is an interesting question, and, and it's perfect timing to follow up on this, this previous question on Taoism and Chinese medicine. So what Jack and I are teaching is a branch of Chinese medicine that used to be within the mainstream of Chinese medicine until the Ming Dynasty, 1497 is the actual year that it was like disposed of from the academy. And that is um, 
uh, Juyo. And Juyo is mentioned in the Neijing as the, the chapter that refers to Juyo in the Neijing is basically paraphrased like, you know, in the old days, they used to be able to cure diseases just by encanting the cause, by praying it away, basically. Uh, those days are over. Now we need to use herbs and acupuncture. Right. And there's a bunch of people that look at that and go, good, we got the superstition out. And now we're scientific and so we're real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thing because it suggests that the evolution of Chinese medicine, even, at, even from that very earliest time, was moving toward a more materialistic approach, which is to say we look at its observational and objective. When people say, oh, Chinese medicine, so Chinese medicine is of two varieties, I think. And, and so anyway, let me get back on time. Yeah, let's, let, let's get back on that. I'm, I'm especially curious about, you said something about incantation. If you have the name in it, it makes some kind of difference. So the practice of Juyo involves, for the most part, written forms. It involves language. And these written forms, they're talisman-like, they're, but they're open, so they're not... A real talisman involves a, a complete invocation of a deity and a, per, and a request and a decree, and all kinds of other things are happening there. That's very much within the context of Taoism, and you have to be um, initiated into that. So we, we don't teach that. We do, but we're only to ordain Taoist priests. But there's another version of that that doesn't involve the invocation of deities, uh, at least in the way that uh, it does within the the confines of this strict Taoist practice. But Juyo is really an open source kind of approach to talismans. And a lot of them actually involve the writing of a talisman and the dropping of that talisman's ashes into an herbal decoction of a specific recipe. And so it's like a really interesting convergence of two things because they are relying on an herbal decoction but they're also amping it up with this prayer-based talismanic quality and so it's a it, to me it's fascinating to offer this type of material to the chinese medicine community at least those of whom are left over who are still aspire to some co- sort of like um the spirit of the medicine in this particular sense. Clearly, this, this type of stuff would be viewed by the, the neurological community as being like superstition, which is what it was viewed in the Ming Dynasty as. So, and I'm fully aware of that, you know. But I, you know, I've been around the block. I've been doing this medicine a while, and I do see that there's tremendous value in relating to people through their experience of their heart and soul you know it's important stuff as well that can be unpacked into various ways and what what it could suggest is that there is a psychological quality to this stuff um, that we are approaching people in a way that verges on a type of psychology or psychological interaction because we're talking about not what's happening to them when we interview them in the context of Juyo, but why it's happening. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like this gets at the story that people carry about their life and their air quotes here problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen plenty of patients who cannot get out of their own way. 
things just keep on going wrong. And, and from the outside, you can look at it and say, why do they just keep on perpetuating? This is all self-derived. What is going on? And, and they kind of need some reset button, and you yearn for a reset button. And what's happened in the Chinese community, Chinese medicine community, is that we've then read in all of this metaphor for our treatments. So you can take a very simple treatment, a group of acupuncture points or an herbal formula, and you can come up with all kinds of interpretations and metaphor and story behind it. But does that empower the medicine itself? I don't know. If you talk to the patient about the metaphor and the story, then that's a different thing altogether. So if you think that you're going to give them guajir tongue, but you've got a very eloquent spiritual description for what it does, if you don't tell them that description, then it, I, think, I think it's still just guajir tongue. But if you tell them about it and you talk to them about that story, if you encant that formula in a way, um, if you turn the formula into a prayer, then that formula does have a quality that supersedes its chemistry. And again, when you say prayer, what does that mean? So in that sense, it doesn't mean anything because what I'm suggesting is that acupuncturists or um, Chinese medicine practitioners, by virtue of discussing the metaphor of Chinese medicine, are producing something beautiful that goes beyond the realm of neurology and chemistry and whatever else, endocrinology. In the, in the strict context of Juyo, the prayer is a memorized prayer that, or incantation that goes with these, this, these varieties of treatments. The verbiage of those prayers is almost like what you're doing is you're empowering this process, this intervention with um, qualities that are spoken rather than material, which is to say, may this calm your heart, may this cool your kidneys, may this, what you know, like that. It puts to words the intentions of this. I don't even like using that word intention because it's way overused in Chinese medicine. Oh, it's my intention when I put this needle in will make it do different things. And I'm not, I don't, I firmly disbelieve that. Um, I think that you manipulation will change things, but your intention might not. When we speak something and it's heard, there is a qualitative, there's something has happened because it has been spoken and it has been heard. And in that, migration of this these sounds from one person to another i think that something transpires i think you're absolutely right about that just hearing you say when you speak something and it's heard something happens i've i've seen this again and again in my clinic especially if i'm talking to someone they're asking what am i doing or why these herbs or why these acupuncture points and if i give them my idea of my chinese medicine explanation okay it it gives them a story, but if it has nothing to land on, it's it, on one hand, they may go, oh, that's kind of cool. I like my acupuncturist because he thinks about these things. Or they might go, what the hell is he talking about? That guy sounds like a cuckoo. But if there's a way of taking what we understand about Chinese medicine and speaking it to our patient in a language that they already understand because they've been speaking it to us. Now they're thinking differently, and they're not even being asked to think differently. We're not asking them to buy into our view of reality with Chinese medicine. We've just taken Chinese medicine and given them a slight twist on what they already think and believe. 
And that can have tremendous, that can cause tremendous changes in people. Yeah, I agree. In the end, no matter what the biochemistry is behind an intervention that's material like acupuncture or herbs, the reality is, is that those interventions are, they're a suggestion. They're a suggestion to our chemistry to do certain things. They're a suggestion to our neurology and our musculature to do certain things. And words themselves are a suggestion as well. And so these things are on a continuum from the coarse to the subtle. But, but they are nonetheless, I think, all in the same vein. And I think that to discount any of it, is a, is a, it would be an unfortunate thing. You know? And I think that in the fullness of this spectrum is where some you know, uh, real care can be given. You know? Well, and a lot to be discovered. I mean, one of the, the fascinating things to me about our modern technology is it lets us listen into and look into aspects of human beings that was it just wasn't possible 100 years ago. I'm not coming down on the side of, oh, if we can't prove it with you know, our material science and it's not true, I, I'm, I'm not there. I find it fascinating when our material science more and more sometimes reflects back these things that are ancient. Yeah. I think that, that, that science is actually corroborating mm-hmm. all of these things. The more, the more science develops, it's coming, you know, it's a horseshoe effect. These, these two ends are waiting to meet. <laughs> the horseshoe effect. I like that. Yeah. Josh, tell us just a little bit about some of the work that you're doing in your teaching, and then we'll, uh, we'll wind it on down. Mine and Jack's community is called Parting Clouds, Taoist Education. Parting Clouds is a play on our temple in Zhejiang. It's called Qingyun, Clear Clouds, but Clear Clouds doesn't really ring the same way in English. We are a Taoist community that we've, we've been recognized first by the Sichuan Taoist Association as a temple community, but our, on our recent trip, we've been now fully recognized by the Chinese Taoist Association, which means that we are continuous with the the Chinese Taoist community at large. We have a program of study that we introduce from the very fundamentals all the way up to things like talisman writing and, and ritual. And so we take people through a journey in Taoism that they, they have, um, they have control over how much they want to get and how much they don't and where they want to stop. But we, we have the availability of everything all the way up to the various initiations in and various lineages, we afford people an opportunity to make Taoism less opaque. Mm-hmm. It's already pretty opaque, so that's 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 great. Yeah. So we provide the community because, like I was saying before, the community is the way in. That's yes, it's how you learn it. Yeah. Alongside that, we engage the Chinese medicine community through Juyo, and so that's where we have the convergence of what we do in both of our worlds, the Taoist and the medical. Great. Uh, Bringing those sandbars together. Yeah. Great. Um, I'll make sure that on the show notes, there's links to, you know, various resources that you guys have. Oh, great. So if, if y'all listening right now have a taste for this, you can just head to the show notes page. You'll find all of that. Before we wind this down here, I'm, I'm curious, how long have you been at Chinese medicine now? So in 1994, when I was at Yunnan University is when I started learning it. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was needling and all of that. Then it was totally crazy, though. 
Um, but when I got back, I started at PCOM New York in 97. Okay. So you've been at this a while. Yeah, almost 20 years right yeah. now. So, you know, a lot of people are coming out of schools these days. They're not sure what they're doing or how to proceed. Have you got any little bit of advice that you give to someone who's just starting on this journey of uh, being a practitioner? Stay the course and don't let anyone make you feel that you're doing the wrong thing. I, it's so, there are so, our field is so opinionated that it, it's, it's not uncommon to be uh, led to believe one thing or another with great vehemence by the people who are professing these things. Because we all have the same degree, more or less, now with the advent of this, these various doctoral um, things, we see uh, there is some distinction, but that the distinction is minimal, I think, because everyone's getting the degree anyway. But we all have the same foundational education. And so what happens when people graduate is that everyone has to make their own, they have to make their own bones. And they do that by very interesting in interesting ways whether by claiming specialization or by claiming some magical teacher or lineage i don't know but i think that it's a dangerous and very strange place for the new practitioners when they graduate to enter our field it's very intimidating and i would say that they should not be intimidated and that they should just keep on working hard because there are a lot of people out there in our field who are going to try to lead them to believe that they won't know anything unless they study with them. Mm-hmm. So you got to make your own bones. <sighs> I like I like that. Really goes deep, right? Talking kidney essence here. <laughs> make your own bones. Know your own essence. Yeah. Right. Josh, thank you so much for the time today. This is this has been a delightful conversation. I feel like I am a little less ignorant of uh, the concepts that I've had about Taoism that I gained from uh, my delightful experience of watching 70s American television. (laughs) Yeah, good. (laughs) Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.